Welcome everyone to Rock M Radio. My name is Sam Snelling. We're here for another episode of Dive Cuts. I believe this is episode 29. 29. Today we're going to talk some college hoops. Uh, with me today is uh, my friend, my co-host, and uh, Indianapolis 500 fanatic, Matthew J. Harris. Matt, how are you? I'm doing well, Sam. Uh, I went out to a racetrack and did not get run over by very fast cars, so it was a win this weekend. I, yeah, I think anytime you, you head down to that racetrack and don't get run over, that has to be considered a, a positive overall. I've driven by the uh, the Speedway. I've driven by it. Yeah, it's it's a like this. That was my first time ever going out there, and you don't realize, I think, how massive the complex is till you're actually inside of it. It's 253 acres, and they've got like half a golf course in there. Apparently, like I looked this up yesterday, you can put 17 Yankee stadiums inside the oval of uh, at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So it's just, it was just kind of cool to go out there. I'm not a particularly big racing fan, but. Um, it's just kind of a cool place to go. It's a, it's just an awesome kind of experience to watch, you know, machines that have been engineered to do what those things do, go at full bore. It just sort of is starting to watch that live, and um, obviously all the history in there. So it was a fun trip. Um, but I'm glad that we're talking college hoops today because we got a good guest. Uh, we do have a good guest. Um, I went all the way out of my way and and arranged for us to. Uh, to talk to Rob Doster. Um, for those who don't know Rob, Rob is the uh, lead basketball writer for NBCSports.com and their college basketball content. Um, and he has a podcast, and they do a really good job over there. So uh, I think this is a really good time to just go ahead and bring Rob in. We'll talk to Rob, and then we'll uh, we'll get some of your thoughts on on Rob's topics. Matt, how's that? Sounds like a plan. Let's get to Rob. With anyhow further ado, here we are, Rob Doster. And I'd like to welcome into the podcast Rob Doster. Uh, he is the lead writer and managing editor of all things college basketball uh, at NBCSports.com. Rob, welcome to Rock M Radio, and how are you? I am doing great. What's going on, guys? How are we doing? We're doing pretty good. Uh, things are, are actually on the upswing at, at Missouri basketball, we actually have a, a couple uh, Mizzou basketball players uh, getting ready for a potential NBA draft. So what better time to kind of bring, I know you just recently uh, had a podcast at NBCSports.com, um, kind of talking about mock, the mock draft. And, and I'm sure uh, people who listen will know that Michael Porter Jr. certainly came up. Um, so I kind of want to hop into the Michael Porter Jr. thing because I also know that you had a, a piece uh, recently on the, uh, I guess, the injury history and, and what sort of questions that creates for Michael. Um, so let me just hop in with sort of, a, I guess, a softball. But but how how do you sort of see the injury playing out and, and I guess, influencing Michael Porter Jr.'s draft status? It's, it's all going to come down to what the doctors say more or less. Like I, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I don't have a chance to see the medicals. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a, uh, somebody that really knows like what they're talking about. I've, I've read stuff that says it has, it's like a, a bulging disc that he's had to, um, have surgery on. And I guess that the procedure that he had, there's a higher chance of something else happening 
as uh, compared to some other injuries he could have had. But that's all about uh, all I know about it. All these NBA organizations, they're going to get a look at the medicals. Uh, they're going to have a chance to see, um, you know, just what is going on with his back and whether or not it's something that is uh, the the likelihood that he could have a reoccurrence of it. Um, so, I, I mean, that, that that draft pick, that selection, it's not going to get made by the GMs necessarily. It's going to be okayed by the, the people that have a look at the medicals. What's going to be interesting is that he can kind of control who gets those medicals. So if he doesn't want to go to, say, let's just say Memphis, uh, I'm just throwing that out there, Memphis at, at, with the fourth pick, and they're interested in taking him, if he doesn't go interview and he doesn't give them their medicals, then there's basically no chance that they're going to make that pick. So he has a little bit of control and maybe a little bit more say in where he ends up uh, as compared to, you know, a typical prospect and, and kind of where uh, somebody else that would be in his position. But I mean, whatever, whatever the doctors say, when they get a look at, you know, at his back and, and kind of at, maybe at some of the pictures of his back and uh, the, the exact thing that's going on with it, then they're going to be the ones that have to make that decision. And, you know, I don't, I don't envy him having to be the the person to tell you whether or not uh, you can take a guy that can be a flame out in four years because his back doesn't doesn't cooperate, or a guy that could end up being a franchise player four years down the road. So that's uh that's not <laughs> that's not the kind of uh, pressure that I would want making a decision. Rob, what do we read into the fact that there hasn't been a leak at this point about Mike's status? I mean, I think we're at the point now where maybe we start seeing shadow games among agents and personnel guys as they try and maybe influence stock, but we haven't seen, you know, a litany of stuff come out even, you know, among, you know, personnel circles or among, you know, folks that sort of track this stuff that would seem to indicate it. I mean, I think that's a question that still exists as to like you're saying what his status is, but it still seems to remain in a black box. Can we infer anything from the lack of a leak or the lack of, you know, information that's sort of seeped out at this point in the draft process. Well, I, I kind of feel like it's like, what else is there to come out? You know, it, we, we know he had surgery. We know it's something that maybe he rushed back a little bit quick on. We know that it's something where maybe it's a little bit higher likelihood uh, to, to reoccur. Um, you hear kind of rumblings that, um, you know, maybe something that maybe his back is a little bit worse than, than people give it credit for. But then you listen to what he says and he's saying that he's he's, you know, the best he's ever felt. And uh, I guess we kind of have to take him at his word at that until we can actually sh- see him when he's in shape. You know, that's the big thing is that we haven't seen him since high school uh, as anything more than like the out of shape guy trying to play in the postseason tournaments or somebody that got two minutes um in the first game of the season and didn't quite look himself in the scrimmage against Kansas. I mean, that's basically all we know about Michael Porter since he uh, left the high school rank. So I feel like this stuff is kind of out there. It's just, you know, it, it's going to depend on how certain doctors interpret it when they actually see it, I guess. And and I think that's going to be, you know, it, would that, that would be kind of an opinion thing, right? Wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not really, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm like an expert in the, in, in the medical field, but I feel like that's the kind of thing where you look at it. And if you're a doctor, three different doctors can can have three different reads on on what that situation is. I mean, look, man, I threw out my back trying to change the 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 laundry from the washing machine to the dryer the other day. So I, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that like a back is anything that anybody can figure out easily. Mm. Well, and and one of the things that I I I think enjoyed when you were uh talking about Michael on on the the podcast uh what you were kind of covering I guess his ceiling is kind of what I'm trying to get to. 
Uh, and you talked about how dominant of a player he was at the Peach Jam, and and what what level of play happens at the Peach Jam. I think I think a lot of people kind of who maybe don't follow AAU as closely as uh, as a basketball writer or somebody who is really responsible for doing a lot of college basketball coverage and having to really track uh, a lot of these prospects. But Michael went on a tear on one of the biggest stages in the, of the summer uh, leading into his senior year. He followed that up with uh, a tremendous senior campaign uh, and, and kind of winning Gatorade National Player of the Year and all these other awards were kind of heaped on him, McDonald's All-American MVP. A lot of people were looking at Michael Porter Jr. as a guy who would be a number one overall draft pick if he were able to declare out of high school. Uh, going into this season uh, where he ended up having to kind of deal with the injury and and looking at possibly dropping as far down into like the the you know, not quite the bottom half of the lottery, but uh, certainly a lot lower than, you know, the top four or five players who I think if he were healthy, he would absolutely be in that discussion. If Michael Porter Jr. is healthy, what sort of what sort of player, what sort of impact do you think that he can have in the NBA? Well, I, I mean, he's going to be able to score. There's no doubt about that in my mind. When you give me somebody that's, you know, his height, his athleticism, and his ability to shoot, I just I don't see a situation where he doesn't end up averaging 20 points at some point in his career, assuming his back is healthy. Right. I just don't see a situation where he doesn't end up averaging 20 points at some point. I don't think it'd be crazy to say that he could average 25 at some point. I don't even think it's insane to think that his ceiling is as an NBA scoring champion. I, I mean, he just he has an ability to get buckets that just is not something that you can necessarily teach now. I don't know if he's going to ever reach that ceiling. Part of it is because of the health thing. Part of it is, uh, you know, just kind of he's he kind of had a label of being soft since he was in high school. And part of that is the way that he was brought up, I guess. You know, I, I'm sure you guys know this, but he was homeschooled until he was what? I think it was eighth grade Yeah, um, heading yeah. into his, his high school year. And um, I remember I did a big story on him. Uh, prior to his junior year when there was all that stuff going around about how his dad was going to end up signing, uh, joining Lorenzo Romar's staff at Washington. And, I mean, this kid was so shy when he was 12 and 13 years old that when the family would go to restaurants, he would like he would look at his dad and tell his dad what he wanted to order, and the dad would have to order it to the waitress. And it got to the point where um, he would his dad would just kind of sit him down and say, look, you got to order with the rates. You got to talk. And part of the reason that in Colombia they bought that shaved ice stand that the family owns and, and, you know, all the kids in the family work at is because the parents wanted him to talk to people and learn how to get in front of people and learn how to, you know, speak and, and handle himself um, with strangers, because that's going to be something that you have to do if he was going to end up being the player that they thought he was going to be. And, you know, I think it worked, man. Like I. I don't know how much you guys have actually had a chance to engage with him, but he's smart. He's charismatic. He's a really good interview. He's thoughtful. He's articulate. He is a guy that is going to really, really sell himself when he interviews with these teams and when he interviews, you know, with the media and when he has a chance to speak to people, he's just, you know, you look at him and he's just a guy that, that's easy to talk to and, and, and somebody that you want to listen to and want to believe. And I think that's, so you have that aspect of him as a player. And then there's the aspect of, you know, is he actually going to be the guy that uh, that can score like that? You know, the, the the other thing I mentioned on the podcast was the one 
besides from the performance he had, the one play that sticks out more than anything for me at that Peach Jam was the one bad game he had when he just got punked by Gary Trent Jr. I think he ended up with like nine points in that game and they lost. And the play happened right in front of me, man. And uh, there was a they him and him and Gary kind of dove for a loose ball and they got tangled up a little bit. And Gary Trent just ripped it straight out of Michael Porter Jr.'s arms. Turns around and looks at him and and I don't know if I'm I, can I cuss on this? Am I allowed to cuss? Yeah. He looks at he says he says that's my fucking ball and stares at Michael Porter Jr. And if you could see like his face in that moment, you just saw like okay, Gary Trent's the alpha. I don't know if Michael Porter Jr. is, and so that play is kind of stuck out in my mind. You talk to people that saw him play in Washington though, senior year of high school, they'll tell you that that wasn't what it was like at all. So the complicating factor in all of this is that the answer could we could have gotten some semblance of an answer if he'd been able to play this year, but he wasn't. He was hurt. So while DeAndre Ayton was out looking like DeAndre Ayton and Marvin Bagley was out there averaging 21 and 11 for Duke and Luka Doncic is out here winning EuroLeague MVPs and, uh, and EuroBasket titles and you know even guys like Mo Bomber blocking shots all over the place and Jaron Jackson is showing everybody how versatile he can be defensively. All we know about Michael Porter Jr. are the rumors that he was soft, the fact that he, uh, he didn't look great anytime that we actually saw him on the floor and some of the intel that's coming out from – um, from Missouri that, you know, maybe he's not the best teammate and maybe he's a little bit too arrogant and a little bit too cocky. And, you know, does he want to work harder? Or is he just kind of in this to be um, an NBA superstar? It's uh, There's a lot of factors going on with his decision and where he's going to end up. And it's just, it, to me, he's he's the most fascinating prospect in the first round just because the, of, of the totality of what it is. We have a guy that could end up being the best player in the draft but he has all this other stuff going on and we never actually got a chance to see him play. What, what do you think Mike can do in interviews or how do you feel he's can ameliorate those concerns interviews? I mean, oh, he's going to, he's going to sell every NBA GM he speaks to man. Like just the way that he kind of carries himself, you know, it was, it was funny when, uh, I think it was Evan Daniels that tweeted this and I kind of agree with the sentiment when Mitchell Robinson pulled out, of the NBA draft combine, uh, Evan was like, I would make, I would tell if, if, if Mitchell Robinson was my client, I was his agent. I would tell him to drop out of the NBA combine as well. I wouldn't want teams being able to interview him there. Um, I don't know if Evan actually said that, but that's kind of what he was insinuating. Mm-hmm. And it's the exact opposite for me with Michael Porter. And, you know, I just, I would, if I'm a, if I was an agent, I want him speaking to people just because, I mean, you saw, you guys saw it on the ESPN interviews. You saw it with the way that he kind of, uh, when he was actually speaking with the media um, at Missouri, he just, he's an engaging, charismatic, articulate, smart kid that 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 can sell himself. And so I, I don't think he's going to do anything but help himself when he actually gets in those interviews. And, you know, I got to say, I love that he came out and he said, I'm I, like, I respect everybody else here. They did great, but I'm the best player in this draft. Like I, that's if, if, if I'm a team interviewing Michael Porter and considering using that kind of uh, draft equity on him, then I want to hear somebody saying, yes, I think that I'm the best player in the draft. Yes, because that's why you're taking him, right? You're not taking him yeah. to be a role player. <laughs> you know, Miles Bridges, Mikhail Bridges, maybe even like a Wendell Carter, you're taking them to play a very specific role that you need on your team. If you're taking Michael Porter Jr., you're taking him because you want a guy that's going to end up being a scorer and you want a guy that has that kind of confidence that says, okay, look, I need 25 shots a night in the NBA. And, you know, I think that's what he has. 
Well, I'd like to kind of pivot to his his younger brother. There's a, kind of a recent, uh, I guess, report. Uh, I think it was from the ringer.com that basically said that right now, Jante is maybe leaning a little bit towards coming back to school, uh, which I think is something a little bit surprising to most of Mizzou media because all indications that we've had all along are that he's pretty set in going to the league. Um, as far as Jante, do you agree, I guess, with many of the, the prognosticators that sort of see him as a prototype center in today's NBA with his ability to, to sort of pick and pop and shoot from the outside uh, and just kind of having more of a well-rounded skill set, even though he tends to kind of be soft around the basket and, and kind of lacking a low post game? Yes and no. Offensively, he he does those things on the perimeter that you want to see, uh, you know, a five in today's game do. Like he he can make threes. He's a really good passer. He's a, I think he's a better pa- passer than people realize. He's just got to like he's a smart player. He kind of has a good feel. Um, he's also young, and that's the other part about. It. I think is he the youngest player that's going to get drafted in the first round? He's right there with Jaron Jackson. I think yeah, Jackson is actually a little bit younger. Uh, uh, yeah, the two, like the two of them, they're not going to turn 18 yet, but whatever. Like, they're both young enough where they're like the age of a normal college freshman, mm-hmm. as opposed to what, like, a you know, Mo Bamba just turned 20 years old this week as a college yeah. freshman. And, you know, most I, I didn't know any college freshmen that were 20 years old when I was in college. Let's just put it like that. So, <laughs> um, so I, I think there's still room for him to grow. And, and, you know, there's a lot of the coaches that are out there. Like, I know John Beeline is very, very big on this idea of the age curve. And he wants to make sure he knows he doesn't just because a kid is a high school senior doesn't mean they're the same age. And uh, he takes those those uh, the age very seriously. And you've seen that success that he's had with it. And, and you know, I think that factors in with Jonte. He still has a little bit more uh, time to develop until he gets to a certain age. But I, I just I honestly I don't know what he's going to be able to do on the defensive end of the full. Like he's he's stiff when he moves. He's kind, he's he's thin. He's not like a broad guy, especially in the hips. And he's got high hips. He's got a high center of gravity. He doesn't really get low when he defends. I don't know if he's going to be a shot blocker. So while I do think he's going to be able to spread the floor and pick and pop, and he's going to be able to pass out of it, and he's going to be something of a playmaker on that end, I don't know how he's going to be able to impact the game defensively when you can't just hide him against the big guy in the post. You know, if he's – look at we're, – we're recording this while the Cavs are playing the uh, Celtics. And – you know, you're seeing um, Al Horford switch out on ball screens and end up guarding point guards during the series. You're seeing it in the the Warrior series where, you know, Kevin Looney's getting matched up with James Harden at times. You need centers that can get out and switch and, and guard those ball handlers. And I just – I don't know if Jonte Porter's ever going to be that guy. You know, maybe he will. Maybe once you get him in, in an NBA strength and conditioning program, they'll be able to kind of, you know, develop a little bit of fluidity and develop a little bit of mobility there. But I just – I have a very hard time seeing him be an impact defender at the NBA level. I think that his size and the shooting ability will get him there, and he's going to make a bunch of money while he is there. I just – I think that there's a ceiling to the kind of impact that he can have because he's only going to be a, a, you know, a play on one side of the ball, so to speak. And that kind of leads into my next question. When you look at coming out of the – at least when you look at the strength and agility test, the combine, the – you know, the lane agility, the shuttle agility drill, he did fairly well, and I think he finished middle of the pack, and he's in middle of the pack for the guys who've done that drill the last five years. 
I mean, but you're not going to see a guy in a three-quarter court sprint who's going to get up and down, who's going to be able to, you know, bust it that way. Explosive jumping, not there. So that sort of leads into the question, if he were to come back to Missouri, how much can that really change in Columbia versus what an NBA strength and conditioning staff can do for him? I, I mean, it, I think it'll, I think it'll it, help. But, you know? I mean, is that is that something that if you're Jonte, do you want to have that play out at the NBA level where teams can still, I think, view you because of, as you said, on the age curve, teams are more willing to say, well, there's maybe some more maturation that can happen there. And if we get him into our program and dedicate it full time, we can get that rectified or as much as we possibly can. And if you're Jonte, that's something that now you can sell as an upside play, as opposed to, I think if you were a sophomore, those kind of questions and concerns get more embedded and and see and are seen as more permanent aspects of your game than rather something that can be smoothed out along that developmental curve. Yeah, but if he's going to end up being an early to mid second round pick, which is kind of the range that I think he's in right now, maybe so a team will fall in love with him and take him late in the first. But I, is that the sense you get early second round? Yeah, that's that's the sense I get is that it's like probably in that twenty five to thirty five range. I mean, it, depending on whether or not San Antonio would want to do something, but I. I there's a lot of teams that I think could use kind of a stretch five or a guy who could come in and early on be kind of a specialist in that sort of role. Yeah. I th- part of the reason I think he'd be early second round is because at the end of the first, well, actually Brooklyn has a pick at the end of the first yeah. round, don't they? But um, a lot of those late first round picks end up going to these playoff teams that have these massive salaries. So they're looking to draft somebody that can play a role immediately. Yeah. You know, kind of like a, um, with Jordan, I know Jordan Bell was second round, but that they they want those guys on the cheap that can come in and play a role immediately. And I do not think that's Jonte. Jonte needs a little bit of time before I think he has an impact. But I guess what my larger point is is that if you're going to be a late first or an early second round pick, you know it's not you're not making a ton of money from an NBA perspective. I think it's going to be less than two million. So if you think if you're Jonte and you say, well, if I come back and you know maybe I play against kids that are more my age and it's going to be a weaker draft next year. And I think I can play my way into the late lottery, something like that. All of a sudden, you make up that that money that you lost because you're going to have a higher guaranteed salary for that amount of time. And the the cost of that is, you know, it's it's one year of earning potential that you lose. You're going to be hitting that free agency where you can get those big big contracts uh, one year later. So there's a little bit of risk involved with it. But if you don't want to roll the dice on being, you know, a, a second round pick and not maybe getting a guaranteed contract your first year, then it is something I think that he should take a, a long look at. And also I think it's, you know, it kind of comes down to the kid, right? Like part of part of being in college and, and being a college basketball player, you still have a little bit of freedom and you don't have the same kind of responsibility. Once you get to the pros, man, like it's a business. You're, you're in the same locker room as guys that have kids, you know, you're in the same locker room as guys that are fighting to keep their last contract alive. It, it's, it's a different, it's the same sport, but it's 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 different when you're sitting in that locker room and what you're experiencing with those teams and what you're experiencing, you know, the way that your life is led. And I, I you know, I, I honestly don't know Jonte well enough to know um, how he would feel about being in college versus being in, in, in a professional basketball player. But I think that's something that's gonna that might take a little bit of um, have an impact on his decision as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Gun to head, I. Feel think that he would probably end up leaving but uh you know i still i think that it's a little bit more 
I do think there's still a chance that he can come back to Missouri. And I mean, if you're Quanzo Martin, you kind of got to hope that he comes back, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's been the interesting thing to watch, sort of how they've handled his recruit his decision making process. They've put out offers to guys who I think could slide in and take a bit of his role, and they've you know told those recruits that there's that role there for them if they want it. So I sort of think they've prepared themselves internally for the idea that he's gone, or at least sort of acted as if they think he's out the door. So this, I mean, it'd be interesting to kind of check back in and see where the staff is at this juncture. But I think at this point, they've sort of prepared for life without Jonte on campus. They, I think they'd certainly be thrilled to get him back on. Yeah, I think that's the way you kind of have to operate, right? You you know, you you go out and you get the players as if he's not coming back. And if they do come back, you can always cut that 13th scholarship player that you yeah. have and you can make them transfer. <laughs> Which the, is because, you know, amateur athletics means student-athletes. That's the way it is. That's a, the one question I wanted to – and I, I'll let Sam get back in, but I was sort of curious when you mentioned the second contract because I think we all saw your piece last week where, and also kind of as a compliment to Sam Sini's piece at The Athletic about kind of that market in the early second round there and seeing some salary numbers. They're getting, at least with some deals, comparable on the first two years of guaranteed money to what you get in the first and seeing more of those guaranteed at least two years in there at a little bit higher price. What's just your sense for having studied the market a little bit? Where do you think, what kind of contract do you think Jonte would merit if he were to go in the first five picks of the second round where he's kind of been mocked in a little bit? Well, the the first five picks of the second round, you normally end up getting – two years guaranteed with a third uh, third year of a team option. Mm-hmm. And that ends up being right around what the minimum is, maybe a little bit more depending on uh, how good you are and how much that team values you. I think some guys, Montrez Harrell, I think got a third year guaranteed. Yeah. He's in partial guarantee with his third year. Uh, once you get closer towards the, like the, the late thirties, early forties, you're looking at guys that are just about getting uh, one year guaranteed with a team option for the second year or like a year and a half, or like a, a one year guaranteed and a partial guarantee for the second season. Um, and then kind of once you get past 40 uh, in the forties is more or less all one year guaranteed deals with a team option for the second year. I think the only guy um, once you get past that, that I think uh, so in 2000, let me get this right. So in 2017, um, Every college player that was drafted in the top 50 had at least one year yeah. uh, full okay. guarantee. I think 12 of them had two years full guaranteed. Cendarius uh, Thornwell, who was picked 48, got two years full guarantee. Um, of the ones that didn't get two years, they all had uh, one year. Like the one year that was guaranteed was above the minimum, and that did include Semi Ojale, who, who actually got a four-year deal because the the – but the way the Celtics do this is really weird. But they'll give you four years, one year guaranteed with a whole bunch of money the first year, and then team options for the second year, third year, and fourth year, mm-hmm. a little bit less money because it just gives them a little bit more uh, freedom. And, and you get – for less guaranteed, you get more money up front. Um, and so the only guy, the only pick that didn't get one year uh, at above the minimum fully guaranteed or two years guaranteed was Thomas Bryant, who was selected 42nd by the oh, Lakers. Lakers, I think. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's money to be made there. It's it's not the same as the uh, getting a first round deal, but there is money to be made if you end up being a second round pick. It's not the 
the death knell that people think it is, but it's it's better to be a first round pick because usually that means you're a better basketball player. <laughs> well, so if Jonte uh, were to come back, what what sort of expectations do you see that changing for Missouri, who's you know still kind of under a little bit of a rebuild mode uh, with Konza Martin, uh, you know, trying to kind of recruit uh, talent back to that roster. I mean, they do have Jeremiah Tillman coming back. Uh, they do have. A, a, a few seniors who played, uh, I guess, significant roles on an NCAA tournament team, you know. But other than that, they don't really have a lot of, I guess, no years back, right? Yeah, per years yeah, back. Per years Jordan back. Geist is back. They're both seniors. Um, and Terrence Phillips got kicked out. Is he? He's, he's gone. Yeah, he's, he's, he's gone. He's gone. Uh, and then coming in, like you know, they've got a junior in Reed Nico, a redshirt sophomore Mitchell Smith. Uh, you know, but like several guys that are, you know, Kim Anderson recruits. And then, you know, Kansas is bringing in uh, three freshmen. He's got two guys that are going to be sitting out of transfer. And then uh, another uh, transfer in KJ Santos, who's eligible to play this year. Um, adding Jonte to that roster, uh, is that enough to sort of put them in the top half of the SEC? Or, or do you think that? Even with Jonte Porter coming in, that this is a team that might struggle to, to compete for an NCAA tournament bid. I mean, I think if you add Jonte, they're uh, going to be right there in that mix to be um, an NCAA tournament team. Although, I, I mean, I don't think it's anything close to a guarantee. I'm always worried about teams that don't have point guards. And from what I can tell, they have the two point guards that are going to be on the roster. One of them is going to be a freshman. The other one is going to be sitting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's not necessarily um, – a great situation for them to be in. But I mean, if you're going to tell me that I can have Jonte Porter and Jeremiah Tillman and Kevin Perrier as my front line, that's a pretty good front line. And, you know, I think that that would, uh, I don't know if that would get, get them into the top half of the sec. Cause man, the sec is going to be really good at the top next year. Um, but we'll see if uh, we'll see if that ends up getting them to be a tournament team. If they get them back, if they don't get them back, I don't, it, it's, it's probably not going to be a fun year for uh, <laughs> no. fans, but uh, it, it, it won't get as ugly as the the three years prior. I can I can yeah, guarantee hope not. that. <laughs> Along that sort of line, where where do you sort of see Missouri as it stands today, sort of falling in that picture? I mean, I'm thinking Arkansas has just taken massive attrition. Texas A and M, you know, lost Tyler Davis last night, or I think he announced that he was staying in with an agent, so they're taking some heavy losses down in college station, Kentucky always reloads. So it's sort of, you know, you don't really include them in that batch. Vanderbilt had a rough year. They're bringing a good recruiting class, but they've lost some production, some quality seniors down there. So just sort of among teams in that sort of group that are taking heavy losses, where do you see Missouri sort of fitting into the picture at this juncture right now, if you had to sort of sift out the SEC hierarchy? Kind of in the mix for the the you know the bottom four or the five without John, without John Tate somewhere down there in the bottom four or five like I, I don't think Ole Miss is going to be all that good I think South Carolina even with Chris Silva back is uh, not exactly trending in the right direction Vanderbilt will be interesting because they do have those two freshmen coming in um, but uh, you know I, if you're not Kentucky and you're not Duke I don't necessarily trust. Uh, what happens just because you get two freshmen coming in. I think Georgia with Tom Crean down there. Um, I'm actually a little bit more bullish on them, mostly because yeah. I think that Tom Crean is going to find a way to uh, to make it work. But Well, they've um, got some talent, too. They're I mean, bringing they've back a lot of production. Players, yeah. 
Yeah, and and like Tom Crane just, you know, I, I just I know that he kind of has a bad rap, um, and I know that he can kind of wear on people a little bit. But he, in my mind, he's a really, really, really good coach. I don't think he gets the credit he deserved for uh, for being able to win the two titles that he won, uh, two Big Ten titles that he won in the span of five years. So that'll be interesting, man. But like, like I said, the the SEC is going to be really like teams that you don't even consider as good SEC programs are going to be good. Like I think Tennessee might end up being a top five team next year. Yeah, we have uh, Mississippi State in the top fifteen. I think LSU is going to be a top 25 team. Auburn's going to be good next year. So it's Alabama might even be a tournament team again, even without Sexton. So it's uh, it's not going to be easy in that conference next season by any stretch of the imagination. And without Jonte, I just I think they're that, that Missouri is going to be at a talent deficit. And I can't uh, I can't I can't you know without Jonte, I don't know if I could ride with them in. <laughs> well, I almost look at uh, Alabama as a p- potential kind of Patrick Ewing effect uh, kind of team because I sort of feel like they did a really good job overachieving in Avery Johnson's first two years with not a lot of talent on the roster. And they sort of uh, had this influx of talent in that freshman class, and, you know, kind of dominated by Colin Sexton, who had a super high usage rate. Uh, and, w- you know, with good reason, obviously, he's so capable of doing a lot of things. Uh, but it's almost one of those things where if you lose a player of that caliber, everyone else, you know, could possibly step up. I, I think that that's sort of a dangerous team that could probably sneak into the top six. Yeah. And uh, I don't necessarily know if it, it, it would be because they lost Colin Sexton. Um, I think that it would be, there's a lot of young pieces on that roster that I think would naturally progress. And I think that they needed Colin Sexton to do the heavy lifting they did, did last year. Like Herb Jones, he's got a chance he to be was, a first-round pick when he puts it all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, he was not ready to do uh, what the team would have needed him to do last season. You know, John Petty can really, really shoot it. But uh, he at one point, like his shooting splits, uh, home and road, were like he was shooting like 43% from three at home and like 12% from three on the road or something like that. I'd have to go back and check exactly <laughs> what it was. But it was – it was it was it was closer to that than it was to like uh, thirty seven thirty seven or whatever. Mm-hmm. I keep looking to it what at the at Florida and whether or not they're waiting on Jalen Hudson to come back to me. That's the biggest recruit for them because then you'll import some young talent in that backcourt. Andrew Nimbard at point to kind of come and he'll be young, but it, he's got he's obviously talented and could fit. I think what Mike wants there, but if you've got Kevon Allen, you've got Jalen Hudson there a young backcourt and maybe that front court takes a step forward. I think Florida's and sort of their transition is going to be real interesting to watch too. I think they could sort of be a team if they put the piece together, could sort of push past somebody maybe like an LSU if those pieces don't all quite fit together. So I'm kind of curious where Florida shakes out if they can get Hudson back in the picture. If if Jalen Hudson doesn't come back, Kavon Allen is going to shoot 850 terrible shots. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be – one of the worst things in the world to watch. Like, I have no idea what happened to him, man, because – well, actually, I think I do. He he is so streaky as a scorer that when he's awesome, he is awesome. But when he is bad, he is awful. And I think that with all the other scores on the roster last year, he just was never able to kind of find his rhythm. So maybe having no one else on the roster and Kevon Allen needed to shoot 35 times a game, maybe that's the best thing for Florida because eventually he's going to find a rhythm, right? Mm. He's got to figure at least one out of every – Five games, maybe. <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. I think they're going to miss Chris Chioza more than people realize. Yeah, LSU to me, I'm still. I mean, I on paper, I love the roster there. I think having 
waters back at point. I think he matures and makes and you know learns to balance risk reward on the defensive end of the floor. There learns how to handle some situations a little bit better. And I think you know Daryl Edwards is a nice kind of veteran piece they have. I, Skyler Mays played better than even I think I thought he would. And I watched him in high school. I think he's done a nice job sort of acclimating there. And then they plug in all those pieces. I'm really curious to see what they do in year two with Will Wade down there and sort of where they where they shake out. I think Will Wade is a better coach than Johnny Jones, uh, which means <laughs> that, that that's not debatable. Let's not get at all. crazy. Come on. Okay, I think I think Will Wade. I think Will Wade is a good basketball. That, that's better to say. I, I think you might be a better coach than, than Johnny Jones. But I okay. <laughs> but I, I think Will Wade is a good basketball coach, and I think that he's going to be able to get something out of the talent that he has. But I also. I don't know if as a head coach he's really had a year where he's outperformed the talent that he's had, if that makes sense. So yeah. um, I think this is not only going to be a telling uh, year for what we get out of LSU, but I think we're going to kind of get a sense for whether or not Will Wade is a really, really good basketball coach or a guy that is a really good recruiter. Well, I, I kind of find your, that point interesting because I'm, I was – I guess less than thrilled with the hire of Will Wade. I mean, I thought it was a, it was a good approach for LSU to go after somebody like Wade, who sort of has a reputation as a guy who can get players. Um, but I was sort of underwhelmed by his performances when he was at BCU, uh, and I certainly when Missouri was looking for a coach, like I I didn't have Will Wade in like my top five or ten list of guys that I I wanted. Um, so w- with that kind of said, I, I kind of want to use this to sort of pivot to the truly elite talent and something that you kind of brought up about Kentucky and Duke winning with freshmen and everybody else doing it. And, and that's why you're maybe a little skeptical about Vanderbilt, but it's also why I'm a little bit skeptical about LSU uh, because what you're talking about, you know, like Missouri had a top five recruiting class last year, uh, obviously you know, Boyd by having the number one overall recruit and Michael Porter Jr. Uh, you know, Jonte and Jeremiah Tillman, both very good college basketball uh, post players. Um, both guys were in that sort of 25 to 40 range in ranking. Um, so now LSU is importing, uh, you know, guys that are elitely talented, um, but they're more like 15 to 30, I think, uh, you know, Javante smarts down there around like the late twenties, early thirties, depending on your, your rankings. So I, I was kind of curious as to your thoughts on maybe fan expectations with, uh, with these really, really good freshman players that are maybe four stars and not five stars and how those impact college rosters where the expectations may be higher for them to impact earlier on than maybe they're ready for. Well, with LSU, um, part of the reason I think I have them where I have them is that I just think the world of Tremont waters. And I think when you do have a, a really good point guard, it kind of eases the burden on some of your other guys a little bit, if that makes sense. I think if, if, if a guy like Tremont waters, you know, the way that he can operate in ball screens, He's going to make Emmett Williams, Emmett Williams effective, and he's going to make Naz Reed effective simply because all those guys are going to have to do is set a screen for him, roll the rim, and catch lobs. You know, he's going to put them in a place where they can, uh, where they don't have to do all that much, and they can kind of take advantage of the fact that, you know, they're six nine and they can jump really, really high. So I think that 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 kind of evens it out a little bit. But generally speaking, like part of the reason why you only trust 
uh, Duke and Kentucky when it comes to the freshmen they get. It's because they get the best freshmen. They get the ones – I think you can probably throw Arizona in that mix a little bit as well. But they get the guys that are going to end up being – you know, they get three or four of them that are going to end up being like top 10, top 12, top 20 draft picks. And, you know, as good as some of these five-star recruits are, I think the 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 most important thing to remember is that not all five stars are Michael Porter Jr. Not all five stars are DeAndre Ayton. So um, just because you a guy is a five-star recruit, he might be the, uh, the 22nd best player in a recruiting class. So more often than not, what you get out of these freshmen are um, – are going to be guys that are, you know, unless they are the cream of the crop and, and like a top five, top eight player in the class, they are not going to be someone that's going to come in and, and, and change your program from being, uh, you know, Vanderbilt into uh, into Kentucky overnight, you know, just because you get Darius Garland and, and Simi Shitu. Those guys are going to be good. They're going to be good players. But, I, you know, when you just have those two guys and you don't have all that much surrounding them, it's the idea that it's going to come in and turn them into a top 15 program is not necessarily true. And I also, uh, not to belabor the point, but I think that it kind of um, goes to show you just how good Missouri and, and Conzo Martin's coaching job was with that team last year because he had a bunch of, you know, kind of guys in that range, like 25 to 40, um, top 25 to 40 prospects, four-star guys that ended up playing well above their heads, uh, partly because he was able to combine them with some veteran guys that were a little bit better than people realize, and partly because he just figured out a way to make it work with them and got his team to the NCAA tournament, def- despite the fact that they didn't have a guy that was projected as the top pick in the draft uh, heading into the season. So um, that's a long-winded way of saying if you're not getting the kid that's projected to be a top 10 pick, you're probably not getting the kid that's going to impact the game all that much. You sort of gave a, a quick assessment of Conzo's first year, and I think the one thing that – Missouri fans sort of, I think the quick description of him as coach was decent recruiter and still kind of evolving as an offensive head coach from what you were able to see of Missouri last year. How do you feel Conzo's evolved as a coach? Cause I think he's, he comes from that Purdue background where it's going to be defend rebound and kind of adjust emotion offense to your personnel. Whereas last year, it seemed like he kind of, evolved or tweaked his approach they installed kind of a fred hoiberg based offense and sort of i think opened himself up to you know less post-ups more pace and space things like that how do you feel probably watch Conzo over the years as to his growth as a head coach and sort of where you feel like he's headed in terms of adapting sort of moving with the times well i hope he's moving with the times because basketball is becoming more like the more uh the farther along basketball gets developed, the more pace and space it becomes. So hopefully he ends up buying into that. He didn't really do it all that much at Tennessee, and he didn't really do it all that much at Cal. And I think that's why you saw him uh, underwhelmed with teams that had quite a bit of talent on the roster. Like, uh, you know, that that Cal team he had with Jalen Brown and Ty Wallace and Ivan Rabb, there was no reason it should have been uh, – you know, I believe they were a first round exit in the tournament after they just kind of had an up-and-down year um, all season long. And then – you know, at Tennessee, people always want to give him credit for uh, getting to the Sweet 16 with that Tennessee team, but he had three pros. He had three NBA players on the roster of a Tennessee team and ended up having to go to a playing game. So that's not really all that great. But then this past year, man, like, look, they basically did what I thought they were going to do with Michael Porter Jr. without him. You know, I thought that, that kind of being a tournament team and being in that 7-10 to 10 seed range was about what they would have been heading into the year. 
And that's kind of what they were. And they didn't have the guy that was projected to be the number one pick heading into the season. I don't think how you, I don't understand how you can look at what he did last year and be anything less than impressed with it. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that Rick Barnes uh, did what he did with Tennessee and Bruce Pearl did what he did with Auburn, I think, uh, you know, Conzo Martin would have been right there in the conversation for SEC coach of the year. Yeah, I thought that what he did last season was terrific. And, um, I mean, we'll see where he goes from here, but uh, he, he really – I think he did a good job with a bad hand that he was dealt last season. Well, Rob, uh, I think we've probably kept you a little longer than I expected, but uh, it's, as always, it's really good stuff. So I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, I'm going to quickly plug uh, everything for everyone that doesn't already read and, and follow you. Um, head over to collegebasketball.nbcsports.com where you can read uh, all of Rob's stuff. You can follow him on Twitter at Rob Doster. It's R-O-B-D-A-U-S-T-E-R. Uh, check out his aptly named podcast, College Basketball Talk on NBC Sports, where you can find it on iTunes, Google Play Store, and I'm assuming it's on Stitcher and all other places like that. Is that correct? Anywhere you can get a podcast for free, you can get the College Basketball Talk by NBC Sports Podcast. Well, Rob, is there anything else that you want to hit on before you get out of here? (laughs) No, man. You just about covered it all. All right. Sweet. Well, thanks for coming on, and and we'll try to get you on again soon. That was fun. Always a pleasure, guys. All right. Thanks, Rob. So, again, a big thanks to Rob Doster of NBCSports.com. I found that conversation very enlightening. I always enjoy Rob's thoughts, and one of the main reasons, Matt, that I – that I guess I give uh, Mr. Doster a little more credit than maybe some other writers is he is a former college basketball player. I did not actually know that Rob was a former college basketball player. That is a new piece of information for me. I've always enjoyed his, <laughs> his material just because I think it's high quality. I did not know that he was like you, a, uh, a, a former college basketball player and uh, with far more uh, experience and insights than I can ever bring from that perspective. <laughs> Well, so he definitely uh, is able, because of his own experience, to provide a little bit of a different perspective, and it's just something. And you know, and I don't, I don't want to take away from other writers who do a really, really great job covering college basketball and and covering basketball without having played in college or at professional level or uh, maybe even at in the high school level. Um, but there is certainly uh, a different approach to it and a, a different viewpoint and i appreciate that from rob and he he does a really good job over there so definitely people go um follow him if you aren't already and, and read his stuff takeaways from the piece um he had some kind of interesting thoughts that i don't necessarily think a lot of people will disagree with on michael porter jr you and i have talked uh plenty on on mpj's sort of possibilities and and uh, sort of his ceiling. Um, and at this point, it's all just a big question mark. Do you have any any follow-up that you wanted to throw in on that or, or reaction to Rob? No, I, I think at this point, there's only so much talking and analyzing we can do. I think, and and I'm excited to see it, is that not just Michael going out on the floor and, and proving where he is through his play. I think that's sort of the thing that, that I think you and I have always said we just love watching him play basketball and you'd love to see him be able to get back 
to being kind of the version of himself that made so many people excited for him to come to Missouri and, and for all the possibility that his commitment and, and joining up with the program, you know, all that excitement that it incited among the fan base. I think it's just, it'd be great to see that player back on the floor. Cause I think at, at the end of the day, you and I have always said to, we root for players. We root for them to be successful. We root for them to, to find the best versions of themselves out there. So that, that's all I really want to see, you know, is for Mike to get to a place where I think he can start that process and he can get back to the version of himself that made so many people excited about his future. His thoughts on uh, on Jante, I think uh, Rob maybe is a little bit more uh, critical or pessimistic about about Jante and his ability to sort of get into the first round than I think maybe a lot of other people are. Um, at this point, I, I tend to get the impression that there are a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, experts that seem to think that Jante is is really sort of solidified himself in kind of that late first round. But there is sort of the you know the caveat to that where there's so much fluidity um, from like once you kind of get into the late teens uh, all the way probably through like the mid 40s where it becomes uh, as much about need and it becomes much about like which team is picking where and and what those teams are wanting from that that pick. And I think that is going to ultimately have a lot more to do with where Jonte lands than, than anything. Um, I do think that despite the reports that we've kind of seen, I, I tend to think that Jonte is probably going to stay in the draft. And I, I think he ultimately he goes very, very late first round. Yeah, it, it, like you said, there's always that level of unpredictability there, which is one on draft night are guys falling a little bit more is there an asset in a position where a team maybe might not have expected that player to be there and they they you know take best available versus need you know are there trades on the night of that sort of you know shuffle the deck a little bit in terms of who's picking where and, and just so many variables that we can't foresee right now that I think it's always sort of that that the picks of 20 to 30 to me always just seem like a crapshoot you could pull a name out of a hat in some ways and probably craft a convincing case for some of the, for some of the players going in certain spots. Um, as far as, you know, my opinion on whether Dante Cesar goes, I think at the end of the day, he can, he did enough in terms of drills at the combine. So like I sort of, you know, brought up with Rob, I think maybe he did enough to sort of quell that the biggest concern about whether or not you can, you know, have him hedge, where you can have him dropping back and pick and roll defense, you know, and, and certain switch situations that somebody may say, well, he's 18, we'll condition him, we'll put him through our program, you know, we'll give him some developmental minutes and then we'll slowly bring him along on that end of the floor because there's so much that I think he can do in terms of what NBA offenses are asking their their, their big men to do away from the basket that, that just make him so tempting for teams. And, you know... I get to see a lot of Miles Turner here who a lot of people sort of touted as a stretch five guy. And so I watch him, his development up close and, you know, you'll see him in some situations that Jonte's used in as a passer, just the instinct isn't there. That's not in his, he doesn't have the vision. He doesn't have a sense of where guys are and digesting information 
maybe as quickly as Jonte does even at this level. So there's some things I think Jonte just has innately that have been drilled into him that I think are going to be really enticing for teams. It'll just be interesting to see whether or not that's somebody like LA or, or Brooklyn in the back half of the first round. And, or is it maybe somebody like Atlanta as some mocks have had him going in the second round to them. So that's just sort of where I'm curious as to whether or not the last, these reports coming out today are just to apply some pressure to teams picking in that range to get a commitment on taking Jonte in the first round. They're just to remove that margin for error there. Because I think in aggregate, while there's some areas he can shore up, he's a, I think he's a, he could be an upside play for, for, for some teams in that part of the draft. So I think he stays in. Uh, yeah, I think we're in agreement there. Um, so good stuff from Rob. A little bit of a pivot to recruiting because we haven't really done much discussing of it, uh, but you and I were just kind of chatting quickly off the air. Thought we could kind of mention a few things. Um, overall, I, I think Mizzou is probably done. I know that there was that offer out to Ed Chang. I don't really think that was a serious, we're going to start recruiting you hard offer. Um, I tend to think that the word offer is often confused for teams are going after someone uh, very hard. And sometimes, you know, these these kids interpret um, things that coaches say as an official offer, and it, and it may not be. Uh, the gauge that I've gotten on the situation is that Missouri is, is just sort of checking in uh, and engaging interest. Um, this is a very early stage, and, and right now, uh, I don't think that they're going to add a 13th member to the class. Um, unless, you know, of course, uh, Jonte uh, fools us all um, and decides that he is actually going to return to the University of Missouri and, and play basketball next year. Uh, but I don't see that happening, so I think Missouri probably goes in with... Uh, with 12 minus two who are sitting out, and then minus another one who we don't know if is going to be medically cleared to play basketball in Cullivan Lair. So uh, nine whole guys, Matt. Nine whole guys should be a, should be a fun season. It should be a, a fun year of hoping that injuries and suspensions don't you know, make the rotation seven men out of necessity again. But no one, I think, in the, inside the program is going to call it a transitional year. I just don't think that's... And obviously, you know, Conzo's comments last week and sort of, you know, as he was out touring the state, you know, don't give the impression that he, at least publicly, that he's going to view it as a transition year. But just looking at, you know, sort of what they've done in the last month, there has you haven't seen the kind of ramp up that, that you might have expected with a, a team that was really doggedly trying to get that scholarship filled. There wasn't a pressing urgency to get, you know, I can't, I can't remember the kid's name now who was out of Miami, um, who they kicked the tires on and Ed Chang, they seemingly just kicked the tires on that. And there hasn't been a rush to get him down to Columbia. So until we see somebody brought in, I'm skeptical that they're really making a concerted effort to fill that spot, which would lead me to believe that they're going to hold it and they're going to see what they can do with the 2019 kid or do they use it for a grad transfer? And is this really about kind of figuring out what assets they have in 2018-19 to put with a really with a couple impact transfers potentially and 
what I think fans hope is going to be a, an impactful 2019 recruiting class. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's pretty much the approach that you have to have at this point. I mean, I, I think that there are guys that they do like. I think they they like you know what Jordan guys can provide them. I think they like what Kevin Perrier can provide them. Uh, and I think they're going to ask more of uh, Jeremiah Tillman um, and kind of hope that KJ Santos and Torrance Watson can step in. And if all those things kind of you know come into, uh, I think what the coaches may hope can happen, then I, I certainly think that you have a team that's going to be competitive. Like I don't think Missouri's going to roll out a team that's just going to get blown out of the water and 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 go like two and sixteen in conference. Like I just don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that that. Conzo Martin has developed a reputation, uh, whether good or bad, of sort of having a low floor, um, maybe not the highest of ceilings, but I think that we're really going to see him uh, excel with, with this team and, and certainly not a 25-game winner or anything like that, but I certainly think this is a team that, that has the potential to really win in the high teens in games and games. And, Maybe not earn an NCAA bid, but but at least be in the conversation at some point during the season. Yeah, and I think when you look at what this team this year, I think they could internally, you know, the turmoil that you know popped up from you know at seemingly regular intervals throughout the year, I think created a locker room that felt like it had a chip on its shoulder. That you know, Michael Porter is gone. You know, now we're losing guys to. To transfer, and there was just any reason for doubt and skepticism that they could keep, you know, a sense of cohesion. They can make the tournament. I think they met that challenge, and I think Conzo Martin was able to use that as a catalyzing agent. I think to the same degree this year, there are going to be doubts. There are going to be people that are going to view this externally as a transition year, and that can become something that Martin can use to sort of internally motivate his group and to sort of bring them closer together and. You know, it's a cliche, but I think it's something that they can use to to bond and weld themselves together. Which is, the expectation may not be that we're going to be great, but we're going to go out, and we're going to show people, and we're going to overcome those expectations. So maybe they use that as sort of you know fuel to what they want to do and achieve this year. But it's at this juncture, just looking at what teams are bringing back and sort of what teams are returning Missouri's going to be in that bottom four or five in terms of loss production and at this juncture it's just hard to tell what what replaces that and so I think it's natural to enter this year with kind of not dampened expectations but just sort of more modest ones than we had a year ago well so with that let's wrap it up I know uh, we need people to go over to iTunes and review uh, the podcast uh, give it five stars, rate it highly, um, talk about how wonderful you enjoy the, the dulcet tones of our voices. Um, also, head over to Twitter. Give Matt a follow. Give me a follow. You can follow him at MattJHarris85. You can follow me at Sam T. Snelling. Uh, Rock'em Nation is where our uh, work goes up in written form, um, or I guess typed out form would be the correct term. So go over there, uh, read everything. We will be back, or I will be back next week uh, with more rock and radio. Dive cuts will be off for probably one or two weeks. Um, I don't know. We'll we'll see how it goes. We'll see if we have stuff to talk about. Uh, but I will be back next week with a, a to be determined podcast uh, for your ears. Uh, so until then, 
Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, guys.